Welcome to First Church. So glad you guys are here. I know that it's a holiday weekend, so we've got some families traveling, but we're glad you're here. We're also glad that our Stone Canyon family, they're joining us right now, as well as others who will join us later online. So if you would, put your hands together. Let's welcome them to our time of study today. Well, this past Thanksgiving, there was a texting challenge that was trending on social media. Not sure if you heard about it, but young adults, millennials who had moved out of the house, spending their first Thanksgiving away from mom and dad, decided to play a prank on their mom. And so what they did, these millennials, they would send a text message to their mom, and they all asked the same question. And this was the question, uh, how long do I cook a 25-pound turkey in the microwave? Now, did any of you guys hear about this texting challenge? or whatever, and you guys play it? Okay, a few of you, all right. I'm sure you probably left your mom uh, either shaking your head or laughing if you played that on her. But I heard, or at least I saw on social media, different conversations, texting conversations that took place, and they were hilarious. But one of the best one I heard about came from a friend of mine. He's on staff at a large church in Kentucky, and the student minister in their church played this joke on his mom, and he knew, of course, how that you don't cook a turkey in the microwave. He knew that, but he wanted to see what his mom would say, and I want to share with you their conversation. So take a look at what happened. It'll be up on the screen. He texts his mom, hey, we're doing a Friendsgiving thing at the last minute. I got a 25-pound turkey. How long should I cook it in the microwave? No microwave, his mom says. Probably five to six hours at 350 degrees. Uh, people are, com- are coming over here around 4.30. I Googled it, and I think I can make the microwave thing work. I'm pretty sure I can get the temperature right. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. I never heard of microwaving a turkey. Uh, don't you just keep it going until it gets hot enough inside? Well, this will be a great experiment. No, I think a convection oven is your best bet. It's frozen. We don't have time for the oven. Oh, I don't think that'll work. It has to be thawed. Get a turkey breast and cook that. Get two. Uh, We really want a whole turkey. Uh, What are microwaves for? Cooking food fast, right? So how long do you think? It's about 20 to 25 pounds. Microwaves are for just certain foods, not meat. Uh, Pretty sure there's a meat button on ours. You cook bacon in the microwave. That's meat. Google it. And I love this response. I called the Butterball hotline. They said, stop your son. Do not let him microwave a frozen turkey. It will explode and hurt him. It was a joke, mom. I'm not microwaving a turkey. I love that. You've probably heard it said there are no shortcuts in life. And that's true not just about fixing, cooking a turkey. It's true about anything worthwhile in life. And that leads me to what I want to talk about today. Because when it comes to the life that God wants us to live, there are no shortcuts. 
Sometimes we think there are, we act like there are, we want to pretend that there are. But when it comes to living the life that God wants us to live, a life of true satisfaction, meaning, contentment, joy, peace, there are no shortcuts to that life. See, the Bible teaches that the path to living the life God created us to live is pursuing a relationship with Him. That's how we have the life that He designed us to live. And there are no shortcuts. You cannot have it outside of having an ongoing transformative relationship with Him. But rather than pursue a relationship with God, a lot of people would rather try to find a shortcut because a relationship takes time, it takes effort, it takes work, and they would rather find some shortcut. And the shortcut that a lot of people chase after is what we like to call religion. People want to find their own path to God. They want to come up with a list of things to do in order to make God happy. They want to come up with some rituals and some traditions that will somehow put them on a higher spiritual plane than what they already are. But the Bible repeatedly teaches us that empty religion, empty religious practices will never get us to God. It will only keep us from God. That's what Jesus said on one occasion as he was looking at a crowd of people and he was looking at those who considered themselves to be very religious and he says this, Matthew 15 verse 8, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In other words, these people are going through the motions of practicing a religion. They're offering the sacrifices. They're singing songs of praise. They're talking about me. They're going through the motions, but their hearts are not with me. They are far from me. And so let me just say, if you've ever been put off by religion, so have I. And that may sound odd coming from me, a preacher, But guys, I've seen religion become a barrier to what God wants to have with people. I've seen religion stand in the way of the relationship that God wants to have with us. Now, don't misunderstand me. There is a biblical definition of religion, a religion that is acceptable to God, and it's found in James 1, verse 27. The Bible says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. In other words, religion that God accepts is that which captures his heart. It's that which loves what he loves and loves as he loves. But when our culture hears the word religion, that's not what comes to mind, is it? See, what comes to mind is a list of things to do, a checklist to keep And by keeping those things, somehow we get a little bit closer to God, somehow we earn our way to Him. And yet the Bible repeatedly teaches that the path to God isn't mechanical, but relational. It's not mechanical in the sense of as long as we just do the mechanics of religion, then we're good with God. That's not enough. The Bible repeatedly teaches that the path to God is relational. It's not about following a set or a list of rules. It's not about earning enough points to win God's favor. No, it's trusting the God who loves you and committing your entire life to Him. 
And when we try to figure out our own path to God, when we try to figure out our own way to Him, what ends up happening is we think we have a shortcut and we believe that we're good with Him, but that shortcut that we've developed and created and we've started to follow, that shortcut ends up becoming toxic in our spiritual lives because it, it consumes us. And our relationship with Him becomes more about the outward appearance than inward transformation. And I've seen this happen over and over again. I don't know about you, but I have. You ever been to a church where you walk in and that church is very religious in the sense of they're meeting every week and they're taking the Lord's Supper and they're singing songs of worship and they're talking about God and they're praying to God. They're going through the motions week after week after week. But you walk in and immediately you sense that the spirit there isn't right, that the atmosphere there isn't right because you walk in and immediately you feel judged or you have felt out of place, or you felt as if the church was just cold or negative, even unloving. Now, they're still meeting, and they're still talking about God and singing about God, but something doesn't add up. Something isn't right. They are honoring God with their lips, but they don't have his heart. Now, don't misunderstand me. I love the church. My job here today is not to insult the church in any way. I believe in the church. I believe that the church is the world's last chance to know who Jesus is. I believe that the church is God's plan A to carry out his mission for the world, and there is no plan B. I believe in the church. I have a high view of God's church. It is essential to his plan. But the church can also lose its focus. And that's why this message is so important. Because unhealthy and empty religion can be a toxin that permeates our lives, permeates our church, and keeps us from having the heart of our God. And that's a message that Jesus repeatedly taught throughout his earthly ministry. And we're going to look at one of those examples today that comes from Mark chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles or Bible app on your phone or tablet, that's where we're going to be camped out today. Mark chapter 8. And in Mark chapter 8, we find Jesus and his disciples in an interesting spot. They're in the middle of the lake or the Sea of Galilee in a boat. And basically, on both sides of them are places where Jesus has just done an incredible miracle. On one side of them, remember, they're in the middle of the sea or the lake of Galilee. On one side of them, it's Jewish territory. And just a few weeks prior, Jesus had been in that area, and he'd been preaching and teaching and doing miracles. And he did one of his most impressive miracles, taking five loaves of bread and feeding 5,000 men. Only the men were counted. He also fed the women and the children. So probably some 15,000 people were fed over in Jewish territory. But then as they sat in this boat on the left-hand side, that's Gentile territory. And on that side, Jesus had just finished up uh, a time of teaching and doing miracles as well. And right before he got in the boat to get back into the Sea of Galilee, he performed another great incredible miracle where he fed thousands. He took seven loaves of bread in Gentile territory and he fed 4,000 men. Again, the women and the children weren't included in their count. So triple that. Again, he fed thousands with only seven loaves of bread. And what's interesting is right before Jesus gets ready to leave Gentile territory, right before he gets into the boat to cross back over, he's confronted by a group of people, some of the religious leaders of the day. They were called Pharisees. And listen to what Mark 8 verse 11 says. It says, the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. 
They asked, they asked him for a sign from heaven. Now, I want you to understand this. Jesus is leaving after teaching and doing great miracles. One miracle, of course, was feeding thousands of people. I mean, that's a miracle that's kind of, it's hard to fake. You know, it's one thing to fool a couple people with a sleight of hand trick, but to feed, you know, 4,000, 8,000 or more people, I mean, that's something that's kind of hard to fake, isn't it? And yet after witnessing that miracle, the Pharisees confront Jesus and say, okay, you're claiming to be the Messiah. You're claiming to be one sin from God. If that's the case, prove it. Do a miracle. He's just done a miracle. And that just lets us know something. There are some people that no matter how much evidence is before them, they are not going to accept the identity of Jesus in their hearts, not because they don't have the evidence, but just because they don't want to. And that was the Pharisees in this situation. And so Jesus listens to their request. And what's interesting is Jesus doesn't seem to get frustrated or mad or upset at the Pharisees. He seems to be more heartbroken than anything. Look at his response, verse 12 of Mark chapter 8. He sighed deeply and said, can't you just see Jesus going, really? He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. Jesus basically sighing and saying, what's it going to take for you guys? I mean, what's it going to take? And Jesus knew the answer. It didn't matter what he did. They were going to refuse to believe in him as long as their hearts were hard. And the fact is, he even comes back from the dead and they still don't believe him. What's it going to take? It's going to take them giving up what they've always known. Because Jesus knows that these men, they believe they've got God all figured out. I mean, they've been learning about God their entire lives. And they're practicing a religion that they believe gets them to God. And their fathers practiced it, and their grandfathers practiced it, and their great-grandfathers practiced it. And they think they've got this whole God thing figured out. They think they've got this path to God and the life he wants them to live figured out. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, no, no, God wants more for you than that. He wants you to actually know God, have a relationship with him. It's not just about offering sacrifices. It's not just about praying certain times a day. It's not just about going through the motions of a religion? No. God wants to have an intimate, personal, transformative relationship with you. And these religious people say, wait a second, we don't know about that. We're comfortable how we've been doing things. We've got this God thing all figured out. Jesus, we don't need you coming in and changing things up. And because they already had the way to God figured out, at least they thought, there was a barrier between them and God that they didn't even realize was there. They continued to live at a distance from God. And I think this is on Jesus' mind as he gets in this boat to go back across the Sea of Galilee. And I wonder if Jesus just didn't say anything because he was obviously bothered by this and he didn't say anything for a while and his disciples are just you know, watching like, okay, is Jesus gonna say something? Are you gonna do something? And then Jesus speaks up because he wants to warn his disciples not to make the same mistake that the Pharisees have made. And he says in Mark 8, verse 15, if you want to jump down there, be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. So what does Jesus do? He calls out the Pharisees, and he says, don't be like them, but then he also calls out somebody else. He calls out 
Herod, who was known for being the king of the Jews. Pharisees and Herod, these were two very different groups here. They were not one and the same. Herod was not a Pharisee. He was more of a secular ruler who claimed to be a Jew than anything else. Pharisees, these were the religious teachers. But what's interesting is when you look at Matthew's account of this same conversation that took place in this boat on the Sea of Galilee, Matthew throws in another group that Jesus mentioned. Matthew 16, verse 6. Jesus says, be on your guard against the yeast of the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees, they were another religious Jewish group. You had the Pharisees who were one religious political group of the Jews. The Sadducees, they were the other. So here Jesus says, be careful, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and Herod. These are three distinct groups. Now, I know the Sadducees and the Pharisees were both religious leaders. They both followed the same God, but they were opposing political parties, kind of like Democrats and Republicans in Washington. They claimed to serve the same country, but they don't always get along. And that was the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They claimed to serve the same God, but they didn't always see eye to eye. They didn't always get along. The one thing that all three of these groups agreed upon at one time or another was that they wanted Jesus dead. And Jesus calls out these three groups, I believe, because they all had the wrong approach to God. They all thought they were doing enough to please God, that they were close enough to God to be okay. And yet all of them were far, far from God. And so what I want to do is break down these three groups with you because I think sometimes we make the same mistakes that these groups made. But before we do that, let's talk about yeast a little bit. Now, I know you probably didn't expect to talk about yeast in church, but Jesus says to avoid the yeast of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herod, and and of Herod. And I remember as a kid when I read this, I didn't know how yeast worked. That didn't make any sense to me. So I'm going to demonstrate it for you in case you don't know. Yeast is actually... It's actually something that feeds on sugar. Yeast is a microscopic fungus that feeds on sugar. So if you take a little bit of yeast and you mix it with sugar, and then after you mix it, you add some water to it, some really cool stuff will happen. I feel like I'm doing a fifth grade science project here, but stick with me. You mix it together, And eventually, it will do some pretty cool stuff because the yeast will feed on the sugar. And eventually, the yeast will consume the substance that it's in, and it will take it over, and it will change it. The yeast will start to control the substance. And so when Jesus says, avoid the yeast of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and that of Herod, What he's trying to get across is a little yeast can live in the entire lump. A little yeast can affect your entire life. Jesus uses yeast to illustrate how toxic religion can permeate our spiritual lives and have devastating effects. Now, when Jesus again talks about these three groups, these are three distinct approaches to God. Let's break each one of them down. The first one that Jesus talks about is the yeast of the Pharisees. And I'm calling this the scorekeeping approach to God. See, the Pharisees, like I said, they were one of the two major political parties of the Jews. And they were known for being the scorekeepers. They were the law keepers. Uh, Now, keeping the law isn't necessarily a bad thing. We all want to be people who keep the law, right? But their love for God's law turned into legalism over time. And they looked down upon anyone else who didn't live up to their measure of righteousness, to their measure and standard of morality. 
And they were fanatical about keeping score. They believed that the more religious deeds you did, the more good works you did, the closer you were to God. And these guys, the Pharisees, they knew Scripture better than anybody. I mean, you could ask them any theological question, and they could name book, chapter, and verse. Well, they didn't have book, chapters, and verses back then, but if they did, they could have named it. They knew the Scripture better than anybody, but their knowledge of Scripture led to arrogance. And it got to the point that instead of loving those who are far from God and reaching out to them, they looked with disdain upon those who are far from God. Instead of showing grace and mercy as Jesus did to those who had messed up, they were harsh toward them. They were judgmental. You see, the yeast of the Pharisees creates religious bullies. It's a type of religion where a preacher will stand up and his whole goal His whole aim in preaching is to make you feel bad about yourself. When a preacher stands up and starts to yell and to scream and to pound on the pulpit and stomp his foot, not to emphasize a point, but because he's mad. He's mad at how bad you guys are, and you guys need to realize just how bad you really are. It's a type of religion where a street evangelist stands on a street corner and starts to yell at people who he doesn't even know and tell them they're all going to hell. It's a religion where people find joy in pointing out the wrongs of others because by pointing out the wrongs of others, it makes them feel better about themselves. It's all about keeping the score. So if they can point out how low someone else's score is, it makes them feel better about their own score. And probably all of us have been exposed to this before. That's why many people in our culture have the wrong idea, the wrong impression of church. They believe that the whole point of coming to church is to get beat up a little bit. I mean, a lot of people feel that way. The reason why you come to church is to get beat up a little bit so that you can realize what you're doing wrong in life. And a lot of people leave church feeling bad about themselves. And I think that's sad because I don't think that's the heart of Jesus. I'll never forget one time preaching at a church. I was a guest speaker, and the guy was introducing me who was the preacher of that church, and he was telling my background and all that kind of stuff before I got up to speak. And I was sitting on the front row, and when he got finished introducing me, he then pointed to me on the front row, and he said, Chad, let him have it. And then he walked off the stage. And I remember thinking, let him have it? What am I letting them have exactly? I mean, what are you talking about? I was like, go get them, you know, eat them up. And I'm like, I'm not here to let anybody have it. I'm here to talk about Jesus. What, what's going on? But that was the mind mindset of that church. Let them have it. Beat them up a little bit. You know, sometimes people will come to me after church, and most people, when they say this, they don't mean anything bad by this. So if you've said this to me, don't get offended. I'm not trying to criticize you, but sometimes people will come to me, and they'll say, boy, Chad, you really stepped on my toes today. And if what you mean by that is you really, like, you know, convicted me, you spoke to my heart, I'm fine with that. That's cool. But sometimes people get a little smirk on their face, like, oh, yeah, you really stepped on my toes today. As if, like, that's a good thing, you know, like, that's what they expected. Yeah, I'm glad you beat me up a little bit. And I think that's kind of crazy because what ends up happening is religious bullies, they become more concerned about being right than having a relationship with God. I'll never forget talking with a family member of mine one time, and this family member was telling me a story about when he was a teenager. He's middle-aged or above that now, and he was telling me that when he was a teenager in church, he invited a friend of his from school to come with him to church. This friend didn't go to church, had never darkened the door of a church, 
And so this friend agreed to come. But this friend knew enough that people, at least in that day, they carried Bibles to church. Now, some still do, but now we have it on our phone and all that. So we don't carry Bibles, you know, physical Bibles like we used to. But back then, you know, church-going people, they carry their Bibles to church. And so this friend of my family members, uh, he didn't have a Bible, but his mom had a living Bible. You know, one of the first paraphrases that, was, uh, that came out. They were green and had, you know, like gold font on it. Remember those living Bibles? Some of you guys still may have them or carry him somebody had given his mom one of those living bibles and so he said i'll carry that with me so he grabbed his mom's living bible went to church for the first time and he showed up and he walked in the door and sat down the preacher saw him carrying a living bible now i don't have a problem with paraphrases honestly you just treat them like paraphrases they're not translations they're paraphrases use them as a commentary it's fine i mean it's not a big deal but you just don't treat it like a translation treat it like a paraphrase it's fine if you want to use that to help you study but some people have real problems with paraphrases and this preacher walked up to this teenage kid grabbed his living bible out of his hand and said this is not god's word this is the words of men and he went over to a trash can and threw it away well, as you can imagine, the boy never came back. And somebody asked the preacher, like, was that really the appropriate way to handle that situation? And the preacher's response was, I don't want to take a chance when it comes to God's word. It's that very legalistic, self-righteous mindset, scorekeeping mindset. Got to prove how wrong somebody else is. But here's the rest of the story. It was a month or so later it came out that that preacher was having an affair with their piano player in the church. Now, how does that happen? How do you have somebody who is so legalistic that they, they will throw away a living Bible and embarrass a teenage kid who's never been to church, but they're having an affair behind the scenes? It's because it's all about the outward score. And as long as the outward score looks good, that's all that matters. And inward transformation, it's not a big deal. And as long as you can keep your little sins hidden, as long as the score looks good, that's all that really matters. See, religious bullies intimidate in God's name rather than imitate God's nature. And I just have to say, I want to pause here for a second. If you've ever been bullied in church, if you've ever been bullied by somebody who claimed to be religious, by somebody who claimed to be a Christian, let me just say, I am so sorry. Because that's not who Jesus is. And that's not who first church is. Guys, the heart of Jesus is found in John chapter eight. Remember when the religious people brought a woman who'd been caught in the act of adultery to Jesus? They threw her down probably half naked at the time and they were ready to stone her. They were ready to murder her on the spot for her sin. And Jesus looked at him and said, he who hasn't committed a sin can throw the first stone. And they all dropped their stones and walked away. And then Jesus turned to this woman. He said, where are your accusers? And she says, they've all left. And I love Jesus' response, John 8, verse 11. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Guys, that's the heart of Jesus. Neither do I condemn you. Now go. Leave your life of sin. I'm going to give you grace and a fresh start to live the life that God created you to live. So if you've been bullied in church before or bullied by somebody who claims to be religious in the past, let me just let you know, that's not the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus is, neither do I condemn you. Go, leave your life of sin. But here's the thing, religious scorekeeping can give people a false sense of comfort because they can actually track their good works. 
And they can think, hey, the more good works I get, the closer I am to God. Not realizing that they're just moving further and further away from him. Next, Jesus mentions the yeast of the Sadducees. And the yeast of the Sadducees is what I'm going to call an expedient approach to God. And let me explain what I mean by that. What I'm talking about is those who practice their faith as long as it's expedient to do so, as long as it's convenient to do so. See, the Sadducees, like I said earlier, they were one of the two ruling political parties of the Jews. And here's the thing, they were not the majority party. There were a lot more Pharisees than there were Sadducees. A lot more people liked the Pharisees more than they liked the Sadducees. But yet, when it came to the Sanhedrin, which was the governing body of the Jews, kind of like the Jewish Senate, you might say, the Sanhedrin was ruled by the Sadducees who were the minority party. Why? I mean, if you would have taken a vote across uh, the Jewish nation and said, hey, who do you want in power? The Pharisees would have got in. The Pharisees were well-liked by the people. Why were the Sadducees, the minority party, the ruling party? Because they kissed up to Rome. And you see, Rome was not a democracy. And the Romans appointed the Sadducees to be in charge of the Sanhedrin because the Sadducees, they liked to accommodate Rome. They were the aristocrats, they were the diplomats, and they were willing to hit pause on their faith every now and then in order to make the Romans happy. They practiced their religion as long as it was expedient to do so. See, the yeast of the Sadducees creates religious opportunists. They will sacrifice their convictions or ethics at times when they believe the end justifies the means. They're people who believe as long as they're giving part of their lives to God, then that's enough. Now, it's not that they're bad people or that they're immoral people overall, and it's not that they don't really believe in God. They do, but they just think as long as we give God part of our lives, or at least the majority of our lives, then God will be happy with us. Religious opportunists, they believe that their faith is something they can pick up and throw down whenever they want to. Religious opportunists see following Jesus as more of a part-time gig than a lifelong journey with him. But Jesus says in Luke 9, 27, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Allison and I, we celebrated our 11th wedding anniversary this past week, and so we went out and had a date night. It was a lot of fun, and, and I love Allison to death, and I would never do what I'm getting ready to say, but what if I, when we first got married, I went to Allison, and I said, hey, Allison, uh, we're going to get married, and I'm going to devote my life to you, but... I'm only going to give you six out of seven days during the week. I'm going to be faithful to you for six days, but I want one day out of the week where I can just do whatever I want to do. And so if that means going on a, out on a date with another woman, that means going out on a date with another woman. I'll be faithful to you six out of seven days. That is the large majority of the time we're going to have together. But you've got to give me at least one day to go do just whatever I want to do, even if that means being unfaithful to you. Now, what, what do you think Allison would have said if I would have said that to her, if I would have said, that's our deal? I'm not going to tell you what she would have done, okay? Because uh, let me tell you something, I would have been in big time trouble. That would have never worked. And you all know that. Because we know that somebody who's faithful six out of seven days is not really faithful. And yet sometimes that is exactly how we treat God. We say, hey, God, I'm giving you the majority of my time. I'm giving you Sundays. I'm giving you Wednesdays. I'm giving you time with my small group. When I drive my car, I listen to Christian music. I mean, I'm giving you the majority of my time here, God. Come on. Aren't you happy with me? We all know that's not how a healthy relationship works. God wants all of you or none of you. 
And then there's one more group here that Jesus mentions, and that's Herod, or we might even, he may have been talking about Herod's family in general. But the yeast of Herod is what I'm going to call a disingenuous approach to God. Herod was appointed by the Romans to be the king of the Jews. This is more like being a governor over the Jews, but he was appointed to be the political leader over the Jewish people. And here's the thing, Herod was not a full Jew. He was a half Jew. His mom was a Jew, but his dad wasn't. But he claimed to practice the Jewish faith. And so when he was in Jerusalem, the capital city of the Jewish people, He acted like a Jew. When religious uh, holidays would come around and celebrations and feasts, he would join in with the rest of them. He would offer Jewish sacrifices. Uh, He would even tithe. Herod was known for meeting with different Jewish leaders in order to get their counsel and their wisdom. When he was in Jerusalem, a lot of times he acted like a good, faithful Jew. But see, Herod also had another home. He had another home in Caesarea. Caesarea was not a Jewish city. It was a Roman city named after Caesar, Caesarea. And when Herod went to Caesarea, he lived like a pagan of pagans. And everybody knew it. Everybody knew that he had this double life. And I don't think Herod, when he came to Jerusalem, acted like a Jew in order to fool anybody. His reputation was well known. I think Herod just was fooling himself. He wanted to feel good about himself. And he knew there was a God out there, and he thought, you know, if I occasionally give God a little bit of attention, if I occasionally recognize him and go through the motions of these religious practices, then, I mean, I won't be great with God, but I'll be okay with God. I will appease God. Herod is different from the Sadducees in that the Sadducees really did, I think, love God and want to do what was right overall. Herod... He's just a phony. See, the yeast of Herod creates religious imposters, people who think that by playing church a few times a year or every now and then will make them okay before God. They know that they're not great before God, but it'll make them okay before God. And what ends up happening is religious imposters live a false life rather than following Jesus in life. And I think the yeast of Herod is kind of appealing to some because we love having our cake and eating it too. But that never works. Living a false life always leads to a messy life. And Herod's life, he was a mess. He was constantly paranoid. His sons tried to rebel against him and he had them murdered. His favorite wife backstabbed him and he had her strangled and I say his favorite wife because he had nine of them at least nine that we know of that's not including all of his mistresses he had friends who double crossed him Herod was known for being unhappy sad and depressed most of his life you know why because living a double life is exhausting and so Jesus says avoid the yeast to the Pharisees the Sadducees and that of Herod So if Jesus warns against approaching God like those men approach God, how are we to approach him? Well, let's read the rest of our passage here. Remember, we stopped, and let's pick up, if you would, in verse 16. Jesus is still in the boat with his disciples, and we find out that the disciples brought one piece of bread with them for this journey across the Sea of Galilee. And when Jesus starts to talk about yeast, their mind goes to bread, and they think they're in trouble for not bringing enough food with them. And listen to what happens, verse 16. They, the disciples, discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? 
Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? See, what Jesus here is trying to emphasize is you still aren't getting what's most important. You're still worried about what you can accomplish with your own hands, what you can do with your own hands, but what you should be focused on is who's in the boat with you. Remember, Jesus had just fed thousands of people on two different occasions. Did the disciples really need to worry about how much bread they had with them? The amount of bread wasn't the problem. It was the amount of trust they had in him because they still didn't know him yet. You see, Jesus didn't come to establish a religion for us. He came to build a relationship with us. And any healthy relationship is based on trust. And we will do what Jesus wants us to do. We will live the life he created us to live. We will follow him where he wants us to go when we learn to trust him. See, Christianity isn't about us finding our own way to God, figuring out our own way to God. It's about following Jesus anywhere he wants to take us because we trust him knowing that he will always provide for us, knowing that he will always be there for us, knowing that we don't have to earn his love, but that he will give his love to us as we do life with him. Religion is all about what's in our hands. Relationship is all about who's in the boat with us. And the more you live in relationship with Jesus, the more you will learn to trust him the more you will let him lead you, and the more he will transform your life. See, this entire time, this yeast has been working behind me. And if you can't tell, it's overtaken this entire cup. It has permeated this entire substance, and it has grown. And when you allow for the yeast of the Pharisees or the Sadducees or that of Herod, you allow the yeast of empty religion to creep into your life, it will eventually take you over. And you will become a religious bully or a religious opportunist or a religious imposter or maybe a combination of all three. But when you truly trust Jesus and you live in relationship with him, he will permeate your life. He will take you over. He will consume you. And he will change you and transform you into who God created you and designed you to be. Don't let the yeast of empty religion drive and control, consume your life. Let it go and enter into the relationship that Jesus is inviting you to have with him. See, religion keeps God at arm's length. But relationship is an invitation for God to come in and lead your life. We change the position of our hands and we welcome him into our lives. He leads us, he guides us, and we end up receiving the life that he created us to live, the life that our souls long for. 
Who are you living for today? What are you living for today? Do you need to let go of empty religion and pursue the relationship with Jesus that he died for you to have? Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for today and this time we've had to come together as your people and, Father, to learn from your word about how you want us to approach you. It's not about keeping a list of rules. It's not about following some traditions. Father, it's about living in an ongoing, transformative relationship with you. And when we live in that type of relationship with you through your son, Father, you change us, you transform us, and we become more like you, and we get to live the life that you designed us to live. Father, I pray if there's anybody in the room today out at Stone Canyon listening online who's not living in that type of relationship with you, that they will seek it today. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.